the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. right relationship with him, that you are right with him. That's atonement. It is the process of being made right with God, becoming, if you will, at one with him. Now, for centuries, people would be bringing their lambs through the sheep gate, for centuries, because that was the provision that God made until the perfect time when his son Jesus, when God would send his son into the world as the perfect sacrifice of all sacrifices. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Nehemiah. Sin is sin, no matter how big or small. And the price of all sin is death. If you lived in Old Testament times, you'd have to sacrifice a lamb to pay for your sin. That's a lot of sheep. Today, Pastor Gary teaches through the different gates that the Israelites repaired, led by Nehemiah. Each gate has a different history and meaning that we can learn from in our own lives, starting with the sheep gate. Thank God that he sent his son Jesus to be the ultimate lamb for all our sins. It's because of his death on the cross that you can have atonement. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in Nehemiah chapters 2 through 3 for part 1 of today's message titled, Examining Our Gates, Jesus and Evangelism. Let's take our Bibles, go to the book of Nehemiah. We're going to be starting in chapter 2 and then make our way into chapter 3. So if you'll turn to Nehemiah chapter 2 with me, please. I'm going to read from chapter 2, verse 11, down through the end of the chapter. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 11. Now this is in the first person because Nehemiah is writing these things. He says, I went to Jerusalem and after staying there three days, I set out during the night, note that, With a few men, I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. And then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall, And finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? 
Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Well, the story tells us here, we just read, that Nehemiah has been in Jerusalem no more than three days when he decides to go on this midnight exploration of the city walls and gates of Jerusalem. It does tell us, in fact, that this was all done at night. Now, the question becomes, why did he do this initial inspection of the city walls and gates under the cover of darkness? Why at night? And the answer is because this is a deeply personal mission that he is on. This is literally a mission from God that Nehemiah is on. Now, just to review a little bit, for those of you who weren't here for chapter 1, who is Nehemiah? Why is he doing this? How did he get here? Nehemiah is a Jew who was born and raised in Persia, and he was living there and had risen to the ranks of cupbearer to the king. He was serving in a very prestigious position as cupbearer to the king at this particular time. The king of Persia is Artaxerxes. And there he is doing what he does in the royal king's palace of Susa in Persia. He had never been to Israel, the land of his forefathers. He had never stepped foot there or ever seen anything about Israel. He was born and raised in Persia because 150 years before his birth, Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, had come into Jerusalem, destroyed the city, knocked down the walls and the gates, took off their hinges. He destroyed the temple, and he took tens of thousands of Jews captive back to Babylon. Now, the Babylonian Empire was then replaced by the Persian Empire. And when the king of Persia, whose name was Cyrus, came to throne, he allowed the Jews who had been taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar to go back to their homeland of Israel. Now, many Jews went back, but most stayed in well, what would become later Persia because they replaced the Babylonian Empire, most stayed. They raised families. They developed livelihoods. They had new lives there in Persia, so they were happy and content to stay there. Nehemiah, his family, his forefathers were among those who stayed there in the land. They did not go back to Israel. So while he had never seen the land of his forefathers, he got word. He got word from a brother of his and some traveling companions who had visited Jerusalem to see what the condition was of the Jews living there, the exiles who had gone back, and the condition of the walls and the gates and the city itself. And in chapter 1 of Nehemiah, it tells us that when Nehemiah heard the condition of how the city was still in a state of rubble ever since Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed it 150 years earlier, Nehemiah says that he wept, he fasted, and he prayed. He was brokenhearted over the condition of the city and over the condition of his fellow Jews. And so he asks permission from his boss, King Artaxerxes, if he can go to Jerusalem to make the 900, roughly 900 to 1,000 mile journey from the beautiful palace of Susa in Persia to the broken down conditions of Jerusalem, that he might lead a rebuilding project to rebuild and restore the walls of the city of Jerusalem and the gates of the city walls. Artaxerxes gives him his permission, and so Nehemiah goes. And as the story goes, as we just read, he's not there three days 
when he takes this midnight inspection of the city walls. But again, it's because it's deeply personal. He's not told anybody yet what God has put on his heart. That's why he says, look again at verse 12. He said, I set out during the night with a few men. During the night. He says, I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. He's just quietly going about inspecting the walls and the gates. He's doing it under the cover of darkness. It's not time yet to tell people what God has put on his heart. You know, look, this is important stuff because sometimes we need to recognize that God is going to whisper something into your heart. And he's going to speak something to you that is personal. It's not time to talk about it. It's not time to just, you know, go blabbing about it. Listen, you know, look at the example of Mary. When the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and gave her this wonderful announcement that you were the vessel that God has chosen through whom to enter the world, you will give birth to Messiah. Mary didn't go around talking about it. No, in fact, it tells us in Luke 2, 19, that she treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. That's what her reaction was. Treasured up all these things, and then she just pondered them in her heart. You know, I shudder to think that if the angel Gabriel had showed up in our day to a 15-year-old girl with a cell phone, <laughs> what the reaction would have been. She would not have been able to restrain herself. She would have been tweeting that moment right when it happened. Had a visit from an angel today. <laughs> Hashtag Messiah Mama. <laughs> she would have been taking a selfie with Gabriel. Wait, don't leave yet. I'm gonna, my friends aren't going to believe this. Oh, OMG, LOL. You know, I mean, I just... <laughs> that's my best rendition of a 15-year-old girl. But that's the idea here. You know, Mary just, she pondered them in her heart. She didn't go around talking about it. Look, sometimes God's going to put something in your heart. Pray it. Don't say it. Okay? Internalize it. Don't publicize it. All right? That's the idea here. Pray it. Don't say it. Internalize it. Don't publicize it. Dwell on it. Don't tell on it. You know what I'm saying to you? <laughs> I could be a rap artist. I know. Listen to me. But it's this whole idea of just like meditate. Now, Nehemiah got to the place where he's like, okay, it's time to tell. I've inspected. I've seen what God is, wants me to do. I've looked at the condition here of the city walls. And so it's time to talk about it. And when he tells his fellow Jews why he is there and what God has put on his heart, they respond with enthusiasm. Look again at verse 17 and 18. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Okay, because that's the condition that's been left since Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed it. He says, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Okay, so now the people are rolling up their sleeves. They're involved in this process. I think it's chapter 5. Nehemiah says they make him governor. And so he's going to oversee this project. He's going to oversee the rebuilding of the walls and the city gates. And chapter 3 is all about the rebuilding of the walls and in particular the gates. Now this is important for us to understand because I want to make sure that we are clear about, okay, what does God say about some important things that we need to maintain going forward and never lose sight of? And so I want us to look at chapter 3 and look at the gates in particular with this in mind. There are 10 gates that are mentioned in chapter 3. We're only going to get through two of them. And each of these 10 gates is named, and each of these 10 gates has a purpose. Now, 
They didn't name it during the rebuilding process. They were already named, okay? They just reinstate the name. Each gate has a name, and each gate has a purpose. And each purpose translates to a modern parallel of things that we need to be sure to be careful about in our own lives. So that's the angle we're going to be looking at over the next today and over the next few weeks. We're going to look at each of these gates. We're going to see the purpose, the significance, what they are named, and we're going to understand the modern parallel. Now, gates are important, okay, for you note takers. Ancient city gates were much more than just entry and exit points of a city. They were very important. In fact, here's just a few highlights of the importance of city gates. Number one, they were important to defense. The weakest point of any city were its gates, okay, because those were the entry points. So if a foreign enemy comes to attack an ancient city, they would try to go through, obviously, the gates because the walls would often be too high to scale or they didn't have the technology to tunnel. And so the gates were the most vulnerable part of any city. They had to make sure the gates were in place. This is why Nehemiah says we have to rebuild the gates so we will what? No longer be in disgrace. It was a disgraceful thing to be a defenseless people. So Nehemiah says, we're going to rebuild the gates. It was part of their defense, but also it's where business was transacted. And merchants would set up shop there because it was where the traffic of people were coming and going. Those of you in real estate, you know, it's location, location, location. And so they would set their merchandise up by the main gates of any city where people were coming and going. So a major center of transaction and business and merchandising, elders held court there. You see in the Old Testament where it talks about the elders sat at the city gate. You'd be able to go to an elder or a group of elders to settle disputes, to have issues settled and adjudicated. And if there were found to be someone guilty of a capital offense, that's where they were executed at the city gate. You hear about it in the Old Testament. They dragged someone to the gate of a city and that's where they would stone them. Also, war strategies were planned there. The elders would gather at the city gates and they would discuss and plan and strategize concerning war. Jesus even makes a reference to this allegorically in Matthew chapter 16 when Peter makes the great confession of who he is. You were the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus then says, based on this confession, not on Peter, based on this confession, upon this rock will I build my church and what? And the gates of hell will not prevail. He's speaking about how even the darkest, most demonic strategies against the church will not prevail. The gates, the place where war strategies were discussed and planned, will not prevail against the church. So gates were important and significant. And as such, if they were in a state of disrepair, it reflected on public life, their daily public life. Gates were important to just daily public life. So as we look at these gates, let me give you first an outline. This is a rough outline of Nehemiah's Jerusalem, the city on top of Mount Moriah, and the temple was in the center to the north. That had already been built now under Ezra, so that's in place, but all the perimeter walls are in a state of disrepair, and the gates are not on their hinges. There were, during Nehemiah's day, and we're going to read them in chapter 3, 10 gates, and this is the general location of each of those 10 gates. When they started repair, it was very methodical. There was an order to this. And they started, we will see here, with the sheep gate at the northern, northeastern tip of the city. And they repair each gate going in a counterclockwise direction. So that's what we're going to see in chapter 3. It was very specific. 
And again, we're going to look at these gates, their names, their purpose, and see the modern correlation today. So we're going to start with, in fact, the sheep gate. That's here in chapter 3. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me, if you would, please. Nehemiah 3, verse 1 and 2. It says, Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests, and note that, note who's listed here, went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zachur, son of Imri, built next to him. So, each gate is named, each gate has a purpose. First gate is the sheep gate. The purpose of the sheep gate was that any time a worshiper came to the city of Jerusalem, For the purpose of offering a lamb at the temple, they were required to go through the sheep gate. All sheep brought as sacrifices at the temple of the Lord had to go through the sheep gate, which is the reason why, if you noticed, Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests built the sheep gate because of its very sacred significance. The priests were building this gate because this was the sole gate through which worshipers would come with their lambs to the temple of the Lord to be sacrificed. Now, why is this important? One of the things I want to try to do always when I step up to the pulpit is to make sure that I'm addressing a broad cross-section of people who are both seasoned saints. Some of you are, have been Christians for many, many years. You're seasoned saints. You got moss growing on the north side of your body. That's how seasoned you are. And then some of you are relatively new in your faith or you're not a Christian at all and you've been brought here by a friend. So this is all new to you. And I want to make sure that we understand the same language and understand terminology. So let me just break down to you why the Sheep Gate was significant in Old Testament times. Every person needed to make atonement for their sins. I'm going to break that word down for you in a minute. But here's the basic overview. Every person needed to make atonement for their sins because every person by their sin nature is separated from God because we're not holy enough, righteous enough, good enough. And so God made gracious provision under the Old Covenant or what we call our Old Testament which outlines all this. He made gracious provision for people to be atoned for, for people to connect with Him and have fellowship with Him and have their sins forgiven. And that provision was the sacrifice of a lamb. And here's how it would work. If you were a male, 21 years of age or older, you would bring your personal lamb through the sheep gate to the temple for yourself or on behalf of your whole family. When you brought your lamb through the sheep gate, you would take it to the temple, and there you would lay the weight of your body onto the head of that lamb. It would signify the transference of your guilty life onto this innocent animal, onto this innocent life. You would then lay the weight of your body on the head of this lamb, and then you would assist in slitting the throat of this lamb, and a priest would be there with a basin to gather the blood that would be drained from the neck of that lamb. Then the priest would take that blood and sprinkle it on the altar to make atonement for your life. It is the concept of one life in exchange for another, an innocent life, the lamb in this case, on behalf of a guilty life, the worshiper who came for himself or on behalf of his family. And that innocent life would be accepted by God as a substitution for the sinful life of the worshiper offering it. And that's atonement. 
Now, atonement is kind of a theological term, and a lot of times people don't normally use this in everyday vocabulary or conversation. And I'm going to break the word down for you in its simplest form, and this is rather crude, and I don't mean that in an improper way. I just mean, you know, in a very raw form. But to understand atonement, and you'll never forget this again when you look at it this way, break it down into three parts, at one minute, at one minute. Because atonement is really the process of being reconciled to God, becoming, if you will, at one with him. Now, it's not in the sense that you become God, you become, you know, like God. It is the sense you become at one with him, at peace with him, in harmony with him, in right relationship with him, that you are right with him. That's atonement. It is the process of being made right with God, becoming, if you will, at one with him. Now, for centuries people would be bringing their lambs through the sheep gate for centuries because that was the provision that God made until the perfect time when his son Jesus, when God would send his son into the world as the perfect sacrifice of all sacrifices. That's why the book of Hebrews says that when Jesus dies for us on the cross, sheds his blood, he dies once for all, meaning once for all time and once for all people. No more does sheep have to be offered as atonement for the sins of the people because Jesus comes, dies on the cross as the perfect sacrifice for our sins, sheds his blood. Listen, the concept hasn't changed, just the methodology. The concept is still the same. God requires an innocent life on behalf of the guilty. But what happened is the sacrifice of sheep were put in place until the perfect time that the Son of God could be revealed. And now in his innocent life, he dies on a cross so that his innocent life would be given as the great exchange for our guilty lives. That's why 1 Peter 3.18 says that Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And he became, 1 John 4.10 says, that Jesus became, it says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So Jesus became the atonement now for the sins of the whole world, so that as many as believed him, to them that received him, he gave the right to become sons of God. Hear me on this. This is why John the Baptist looked at Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is why Paul referred to Jesus as our Passover lamb. This is why Isaiah the prophet looking forward to Messiah said he's like a lamb led to slaughter. It is why John the apostle in Revelation 5:12 says, "Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise." Jesus is the perfect lamb who died for the sins of the world. It is the reason why in the book of Revelation that Jesus uses the word lamb as the title for himself more than any other description. 31 times in the book of Revelation, Jesus is referred to as the lamb because he would come, shed his blood, die for us as that sacrifice to take away our sins. And by Jesus, we can be atoned. By Jesus, we can be atoned. And through him, Jesus even said in John 10, verse 7, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. Okay, all who enter that gate will be saved, John 10, verse 9. So Jesus even declares it about himself. I am the entry point. I am the way to be saved. Now, this is important for us to understand, and I'll tell you why. Because we live in a very pluralistic society with universal thought. And our culture will tell you 
that there are many paths to get saved. And the world will say to you that all religions are the same, just different ways to get to God. And the world will tell you that if you're just a good enough person, you're good to go. Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. That's all we have time for today on Cornerstone Connection. We're so glad you've taken the time out of your day to join us for a period of learning and encouragement for your life. If you were blessed by today's teaching, we'd encourage you to share it with someone you feel could use a little blessing as well. You can find and share this and many additional messages online at cornerstoneconnection.cc. You can also subscribe to our podcast or take us with you on the go with our mobile app. Pastor Gary has also created companion resources that go along with some of the studies he's done. These are available on our website as well. Again, that address is cornerstoneconnection.cc. We at Cornerstone Connection believe that life is done better in community. Are you part of a local body of believers? For those of you in the Leesburg, Virginia area, we'd like to invite you to join us in person at Cornerstone Chapel. Come to our weekend services and find a warm group of people who would love to be your community. Weekend services are held Sunday at 8.30, 10, and 11.45 a.m. And we have a midweek gathering on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Thanks again for joining us today. We hope you'll come back next time as Pastor Gary continues through the book of Nehemiah on Cornerstone Connection. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.